Hello and welcome to the Spiritual School Bus. I'm Mandy Hecht. I'm an ordained minister with the Canadian Baptist of Western Canada, and I drive a school bus. In Baptist churches and on the bus, it seems like everyone wants to sit in the back. You, however, are invited to take a front row seat on the Spiritual School Bus. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus. We're going to read through in chapter 12 and chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be a year old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire, with the head, legs, and internal organs." Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on your houses, where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And now we're going to go to chapter 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The firstborn offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Aviv, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it shall be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your children, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. May God bless the reading and hearing of the word this morning. So how do you know when your world has changed? We often think that identifying momentous events in our lives will be easy, and the signs will be obvious, that we'll know, that we'll know it when we see it, And sometimes things do work that way. But right now we're living in a world that has changed. In some cases, it has changed significantly. In ways that we could not even have imagined six months ago, let alone a year ago. Lately, I've heard a number of people speaking of the pre-COVID world as the before times. And that feels true. We know that we're living in a vastly different world than we used to. The signs are everywhere. When you go to the grocery store or school... We see it everywhere. But can we pinpoint the exact hour and time when our world changed? At least for me, and I think this is the experience for many, it kind of dawned on us gradually. First, we heard rumors of something out there, something that affected people in China, but we didn't really think that much about. 
And then it was closer, but as still far enough away as it ravaged Italy. And then it spread to other places in Europe, and suddenly it was on our own shores. And when we first experienced the lockdown, we thought it might last a couple of weeks. And then, well, maybe a couple of months. But the knowledge that we're in this for the long haul, that the world has changed significantly, and we may never quite get back to the way things were in the before times. And maybe that isn't the most lofty goal anyway. That knowledge comes on us slowly and gradually. And so it is often. Things change for sure, but they often change for us very gradually. And only in retrospect do we figure out that our world will now never be the same again. So how do you know when your world has been changed? Often it's just looking back that you realize you live in a different world. But for the people of Israel, whom we've been getting to know this fall, they knew exactly when their lives changed. And they were certainly a people in need of a change. In fact, they needed an entirely new start. At the close of the book of Genesis, the family of Israel, who was formerly named Jacob, who was the son of Isaac and Rebekah, and the great-grandson of Abraham and Sarah, that family had made it to Egypt. It was a circuitous route, to be certain. It involved a lot of ups and downs in the lives of Joseph, who was one of Israel's or Jacob's youngest children, but his favored one. Through jealousy and violence and slavery and deceit and troubles and famine, God worked all these unfortunate events and redeems them, all to get Joseph to his place in Egypt, where he can accomplish God's good work, saving many lives, including the lives of his entire family from the ravages of famine. And the curtain closes on the book of Genesis, and it looks like things are going all right for the family of Israel. They're in Egypt. They're in the place where they would finally realize the promise that God made to Abraham, that he would be the ancestor of many. Indeed, in Egypt, this family does grow and then grow again until they become a nation. All's well that ends well, as the saying goes. However, there's also the saying that says, happily ever after just depends on where you stop telling the story. And so it is with this story. Because if we only had the book of Genesis, we would think that the story that began with God's promises in Eden actually ends pretty well. Maybe not quite as full as we'd like, but still pretty good. It ends with forgiveness. It ends with the evidence of God working through difficult things and flawed people. And it ends with many lives being saved. However, the book of Genesis was never meant to stand alone. Like famous series of books or movies or stories like The Lord of the Rings or all the Marvel superhero movies, the first book only tells the first part of the story. There is more. And as the curtain opens on the book of Exodus, we discover that the people of Israel, for that's what they've now become, they become a people. They've been transformed from being just a large family to actually having enough people to be considered a nation. But they're in a much darker place than they were when Genesis ended. The Israelites settled in Egypt since the time that they were saved there by the diligent work of Joseph. And since then, they have done what people do. They get married and they have families. And in this way, their numbers began to increase greatly. In fact, we read in Exodus chapter 1 that the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. It is so interesting, considering our reading today, which is deeply connected with memory, that the plight of the Israelites begin with a failure 
of memory. Over the years, the name of Joseph, which meant so much not only to the people of Israel who claimed him as their family and their ancestor, but also to the people of Egypt because Joseph orchestrated their rescue when their future was in jeopardy through that famine. But eventually, time passes, and the king of Egypt, and probably most Egyptians in general, forget Joseph. He means nothing to them now. And so they turn their eyes on his numerous kin, who have done so well what God told them to do way back in the beginning of Genesis, to multiply and increase in number. And they do that job so well that the Egyptian king begins to get nervous. So nervous, in fact, that he enslaves the people, thinking that if he can impress them, he could oppress them, he could keep them under control. But it doesn't end up working because the people continue to increase in number. And so Pharaoh's actions get more drastic as he gets more desperate. He orders the death of every newborn baby boy. And he tries to accomplish this through the help of two Hebrew midwives named Shipra and Pua. But Pharaoh underestimates these two women. Actually, there's a number of women who factor into this story who get underestimated by the mighty and the powerful, but that's a tale for another day. But Shipra and Pua refuse to do what Pharaoh asks of them. And so the people of, continue, of Israel continue to do what God asked them to do. The attempts at oppression are not working as Pharaoh thought they would. So then he enlists the help of the entire Egyptian people, telling them to commit infanticide on every Hebrew male baby under two that they come across. The family of God's choosing by now become the nation that God promised to Abraham is in trouble. They need a new beginning. And it is out of this bleak and oppressive situation that Moses comes. Moses is the one through whom God will work this time to save his people, to give them a new beginning. And against all odds, Moses manages to survive and even gets smuggled into the court of Pharaoh and ends up re being raised by Egypt. God calls Moses to deliver God's people from the hand of Pharaoh and then God meets Moses out in the desert and gives Moses the name. And then Moses and his brother Aaron begin a showdown with Pharaoh, which results in the ten plagues being visited on the people of Egypt. Every time Pharaoh refuses to honor God's wishes, spoken through Moses and Aaron, and release the Israelites from their oppression. And the plagues are nasty things, the cause of great suffering. The river Nile turns to blood. That's the river they use for drinking water and for to irrigate their crops. And then frogs appear everywhere, and then gnats followed by flies. And then the livestock of Egypt is struck down, and then boils appear on both people and animals. And then the weather gets into the action. The worst hailstorm they've ever seen hits Egypt. And then we're back to insects, this time to devouring locusts, though you wonder how much they had left to devour. And then darkness overtook the land of Egypt for three whole days. And that actually brings us up to speed in the story. But there is one plague yet to come, the plague of the firstborn, where every single firstborn son in Egypt will be struck down by death. And as bad as everything is that has come before, this one is worse yet. Even the will of the stubborn and unfeeling Pharaoh is going to be broken by this one. And this is the new beginning. This is the day that life changes for this people. When they do make it to the other side, the other side of the Red Sea and the other side of slavery, everything will be completely different for them. In fact, in many ways, this is an instance of new life, almost 
what we would call a resurrection. In fact, this event has been said to be to the First Testament what Easter is to the Second Testament. The Passover was the event, the decisive time when God acted on behalf of God's people, when God heard their cries and led them from slavery into freedom straight through a wall of water. This would be the after of their world, the day everything changed for them. And sure, sometimes when things got tough in their new life, for life in this world is rarely perfect, and they certainly encountered problems and struggles even when their world changed, when they went from oppressed to free, and they occasionally looked back at and wondered if life in Egypt was really so bad as all that. But these musings, which I think display our natural human tendency to look backward with rose-colored glasses, never quite win the day. Because this is the day that they went from oppression to freedom. The day they went from a quiet, certain death to life. In fact, as we learn in our reading today, this day is going to be the first day of their new calendar This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year, says Exodus 12, 2. So this event changes the way they order time. There was a time before and a time after, kind of like we refer to the before times of the coronavirus, but more like we split our calendar into B.C. Originally, it stood for before Christ and then A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Not only did this event mark a new beginning and a fresh start, figuratively speaking, it did so literally speaking as well, as far as the people of Israel were concerned. But the interesting thing is that they pause in the middle of this action, just as the story's getting to the fever pitch. Each plague ratchets up the drama, and each time Pharaoh promises and then goes back on his promise to free the people of Israel, and the story gets more and more intense. And just when we're about to learn that God is going to bring the most devastating plague of them all, the action stops. And we have our chapters here, which talk about how the people of Israel are going to commemorate this story going forward. As it said in chapter 13, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. On that day, tell your children, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. So Moses gives the people of Israel a festival and instructs them to tell the story. And not only to tell the story to each other, but to pass that story on to those who come after them and to tell it to their children. Because as one writer puts it, if we do not tell God's story, other stories will rush to fill the vacuum. And many of those do not lead to flourishing. So the action is paused at this crucial part in the story so that the people will remember. The people of Israel are given a festival so that they will remember what happened on this day. And it's more than just daydreaming or more than just some sentimental nostalgia. In the Bible, the word memory is important and it is active. For instance, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, when the memory of Joseph faded out of the Pharaoh's memory, That's when he begins to fear the Israelites and begins to first oppress them and then try to systematically wipe them out. You know, we see this even when we refer to God. After the flood, it says that God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind of the earth and the waters receded. When God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, we read God remembered Abraham and he brought Lot, who is Abraham's nephew, out of the catastrophe 
that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Similarly, we read a little later on that God remembered Rachel, who was Jacob's wife, and he listened to her and he enabled her to conceive. In fact, that's how Joseph came about. And then at the start of the story that we're telling today, we read in Exodus chapter 2, God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, of course, it isn't as if God forgot that Noah and Lot and Rachel and Abraham existed until he suddenly ran into them in the grocery store and then he remembered them. Instead, God remembers and it refers to action. When God remembers, God does something. And memory, as it turns out, is also central to the act of our faith. One writer tells us that the strong emphasis on our faith on the act of remembering or memory is important for two reasons. Because remembering produces contemporary action and because remembering yields future hope. That's what we see with God's memory. It produces contemporary action. God remembered and then sent a wind to dry up the water when Noah was on the ark. Or God remembered and then rescued Lot from the catastrophe. Or God remembered and enabled Rachel to conceive a child where God remembered, and the descendants of Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob, Leah, Bilhah and Zilpah are taken out of their oppressive situation that we find them in the beginning of the book of Exodus. And it works the same way with us too, you know. You're probably familiar, it's coming up soon, but every year we observe November 11th as a Remembrance Day a day when we remember the people who have fought and sacrificed and died in any armed conflict that Canada has been involved in. But we do this, we do this to remember past wars, of course, but not only that, because if you've ever been to our Remembrance Day service, one song that we often sing is the song, Let There Be Peace on Earth and Let It Begin With Me. So by remembering the horror and the sacrifice and the violence of war, we hope that we might be prompted to present action. When we remember the way that war harms us, we act today for peace. And it's the same in our relationship between memory and our faith. Memory produces current action. One iteration of the people of Israel receiving the Ten Commandments contains a reason attached to one of them. The Fourth Commandment, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, has a reason attached. In Deuteronomy, this is the reason. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So God is saying, remember where you come from. Remember how you were once worked unfairly, nearly to death. And when you remember this, you're called to present action And your present action is not to unfairly work yourself or anyone else around you. You do not not any longer work people to death. Remembering our past calls us to present action. And the second reason memory is important to our faith is that it yields future hope. When we remember what God has done, it gives us hope for the future. In the Psalms, we see this very thing in Psalm 77. It starts out pretty dark. It says, I'm awake all night, not a wink of sleep. I can't even say what's bothering me. I go over the days one by one. I ponder the years gone by. I strum my lute through the night, wondering how to get my life together. Will the Lord walk off and leave us for good? 
Will he never smile again? Is God's love worn threadbare? Has God's salvation promise burned out? Has God forgotten his manners? Has he angrily stalked off and left us? Just my luck, I said. The high God goes out of business just the moment I need him. But then the psalm turns and says, Once again I'll go over what God has done. Lay out on the table the ancient wonders. I'll ponder all the things you've accomplished and give a long, loving look at all your acts. That is Psalm 77, verses 5 to 12 in the message. So when the psalmist remembers going over and over again what God has done, that is when he realized that God has not, in fact, angrily stopped off and left, nor has God gone out of business. Remembering gives the psalmist hope for the future. And just like our story pauses right here, right at the height of the tension, right before the final action of the people of Israel walking through the waters of the Red Sea to help people to remember to tell the story, to remember to remember, to urge the people to make plans to remember. So it is that Christians have their own story to tell. And it begins with the celebration of the Lord's Supper, which you know we have set before us today. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are setting aside a time regularly to tell the story. We set aside time to remember. We remember so that we're prompted to present action. We remember so that we will have hope for the future. In her book, 1,000 Gifts, Anne Voskamp writes, Is this why the Israelites keep recounting their past? To trust God for their future. She says, Remembering is an act of thanksgiving a way of thanksgiving. And isn't that ultimately what Christ asks of us in the Last Supper? One of the very last directives he offers his disciples, the one of supreme importance that I too often neglect, to remember. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember and give thanks. This is the crux of Christianity, to remember and to give thanks. Why? Why is remembering and giving thanks really the core of the Christ faith? Because remembering with thanks is what causes us to trust, to really believe. And so like the people of Israel, like Jesus told us to do, we pause again today. We pause to tell the story of God's love for the whole world. Because there are other stories that threaten to fill the vacuum if we do not tell this one. Because we want to remember so that we will act today because we want to remember so that we have hope for tomorrow. We live in a different world today than we used to live in. And so, as we acknowledge that we live in a new world and try and figure out how we might do that, we pause and remember. Would you pray with me as we go to the table of the Lord? Lord God of grace and of liberty, on the night of the Passover, the sacrificed lamb became a sign of freedom and you freed the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. In Jesus, you sacrificed your son as a gift, thereby freeing all humanity from sin and from death. Help us to live this new life, teaching us to serve you in the faithfulness that you have served us. To you, we offer our gratefulness in the name of the one who turns slavery into new life, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it is in Jesus' name and in Jesus' memory that we come today to the table you have set before us. Lord God, as we approach your table, we lift our minds and our hearts above the selfish fears and cares. We ask that the bread and the cup would be for us a witness 
and a sign of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit. Before the throne of the Heavenly Father and the cross of the Redeemer, we make our humble confession of sin and we dedicate our lives to service. And we pray for the strength to know and to do the will of God because we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been the Spiritual School Bus. Thank you for listening. For more Spiritual School Bus, visit www.pastormandy.com. This recording is copyright 2020 by Mandy Hecht and may only be copied or redistributed by express written permission. Thank you and have a blessed week. Holy God, today we have been nourished and have had our thirst quenched through broken bread and the cup poured out in thanksgiving for your son, Jesus Christ. Send us out to be as generous to those we meet this week that we may show through our word and our deed that God is not dead, but risen and present among us. Hallelujah. Amen. Go in peace.